read for us? Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, right? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Morning, everyone. Please do keep your Bibles open to this wonderful, iconic passage of Scripture. I'll lead us briefly in prayer and we'll get stuck into it together. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your word, the Bible. Pray now, Heavenly Father, that we will set aside any distractions that will get in the way of us uh, humbly listening to your word and being changed by it to grow in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. If there is ever a teaching with which Protestant, Reformed, Evangelical Christians are at risk of being over-familiar with, such that we're desensitised to its profundity, It's the teaching we get in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If there's ever a biblical teaching with which the non-Christian world is thoroughly unfamiliar, such that they have a huge misconception about what constitutes genuine Christianity, it's the teaching we get in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. One of the biggest problems for Christians is our over-familiarity with the biblical doctrines of sin and of grace, both of which are presented with great clarity in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. One of the biggest misconceptions that those outside the church have about genuine Christianity comes as a result of being thoroughly unfamiliar with these basic biblical doctrines of sin and grace both of which are presented with great clarity in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If you're a Christian, what is it that can help prevent against over-familiarity with these fundamental yet life-changing doctrines of sin and of grace? If you're investigating Christianity, what is it that can help ensure you don't have any major misconceptions about biblical Christianity such that your choice to accept or reject Jesus is a choice for which you can say you have been genuinely informed. Well, the solution, on both counts, 
is to consider with fresh eyes what the Apostle Paul has famously written to a broad, non-Jewish, a Gentile audience in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And uh, as uh, you heard when it was read, the passage begins with rather dark and damning words. Verse 1, as for you, you Gentiles, that is, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. To be dead in transgressions and sins means to be completely and irrevocably cut off from relationship with God with no possibility of reconciliation. Uh, It wasn't too long after I myself had become a follower of Jesus that I was chatting with an older Christian man who knew that I uh, have a Jewish background and so he asked if my family had already lit the candles for me. He was referring, because he must have been pretty learned, he was referring to a Jewish tradition called the Yaretzet, which is when in memory of a person who has died, Jews will light a candle as a symbol of mourning and commemoration uh, annually. This guy had the vague notion that in some Jewish families, if a person becomes a Christian, the family will disown them so strongly that they'll treat them as if they're dead. Uh, it's portrayed in a fairly big uh, pop culture reference, really, uh, the, great, the great play The Fiddler on the Roof, where if you're familiar with the story, Tevya, the main character, his third daughter, Chava, marries a non-Christian, and so Tevya and the family consider her dead. Now, you'd be pleased to know, I assume, that no one in my family has lit candles for me, or unless they have and I don't know about it, which would be super awkward and hilarious. Uh, But I mention this because there is a certain rightness about associating the irrevocable breaking of relationship with death. In fact, the very reason that death is so profoundly, gut-wrenchingly tragic is precisely because it makes a permanent end of relationship. I had a relationship with my maternal grandfather, it was a great relationship, but I do no longer because he died. Death spells the irrevocable breaking of relationship and even the possibility of relationship. And the Apostle Paul wants his Gentile readers to know that that is the grave character and outcome of human sinfulness. This is the biblical understanding of sin. To be dead in transgressions and sins means to be completely and irrevocably cut off from relationship with God with no possibility of reconciliation. Such death has both a physical and a spiritual character. So Paul continues, verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, there's the worldly, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, who are those uh, who are disobedient, worldly and spiritual. Now, to follow the ways of this world is to live a life that most people would consider completely normal. 
But that's because the normal life is, by default, life completely and irrevocably cut off from God. So the best you can hope for is material comfort, security. The scariest thing that you need to avoid is anything to do with death, which is why we've got a huge anti-aging industry with its wrinkle creams and the like. And it's why people officiating at funerals will often speak of the deceased as having passed on or passed away, yet somehow living on in our memories or something vague like that. There is also a spiritual and demonic dimension to human fallenness. Sinners are under the rule of Satan. They inhabit an unseen dominion of darkness, as Paul would write in another letter. And that's evident by their unwillingness and inability to obey the gospel. In fact, one of the biggest telltale signs that someone is under the power of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, is the fact that they laugh at such a notion, deriding the idea that there even is such a thing as the spiritual realm. Now, Paul's readers here might have just, at a pinch, been tempted to think that a good religious person who seeks to obey God might somehow be exempted from this hopeless condition. Surely a very spiritual person or a religious person isn't dead to God. And so Paul goes on to say that, no, not even observant Jews like himself were any different. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So there's no special place for the faithful Jews. They're as sinful as anyone else. There's no special place for what we might call religious people. They're as sinful as anyone else. So-called good people it's just a misnomer. They're as sinful as anyone else. Notice also that the character of the fallen life is gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following both its desires and thoughts. You see, intelligence has nothing to do with godliness, as Roz rightly pointed out. You can be super intelligent, you can be the professor at the university and therefore just be super good at gratifying your sinful desires. You can't think or meditate your way out of sin any more than you can raise yourself from being dead. You put this all together, and I'm sure you're feeling this by now, you get the most hopeless and grim and negative and damning situation possible, which is precisely what Paul is communicating, because that is reality. A dead person cannot do anything. Least of all, somehow reach out to God in repentance. It's in our very nature that we're rightly the object of God's righteous wrath. There is no such thing as being spiritually neutral, like, oh, I haven't turned to Christ, I'm not a Christian, but I haven't rejected God either, I, I'm still making up my mind. No, that's completely impossible. The mind is hostile. 
in our sin, we are dead. We are completely cut off from God. We live in smug defiance of Him, even as we, you know, pursue so-called neutrality. The fact we convince ourselves we're not really all that bad is simply another dreadful way of expressing our hopeless rebellion. It is thoroughly impossible for any human in this fallen world to restore their relationship with God. For by very definition, it is permanently and irrevocably destroyed. And yet, all the way through, Paul has been speaking in the past tense. You were dead in sin. And that's because God is the God of the impossible. He can change what would otherwise be permanent. He can reverse what is otherwise irreversible. He can take a dead sinner and miraculously raise them as he did with Christ. The greatest miracle you can ever see on earth, a miracle that is on par with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, is when God takes someone who's dead in sin and makes them someone raised with Christ, i.e. restored back into perfect relationship with God. And so verse 4, we have the biggest but in the Bible. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God, who is rich in mercy, there's a fitting description of God worth dwelling on. He's the holy God who will deliver perfect justice. He's the holy God who will punish sin. Sinners by nature are deserving of His wrath. And yet, He's not described as rich in justice or rich in righteous anger, even though, of course, he's perfect on those two counts. He's the God who is rich in mercy. A sinner can do nothing to change their predicament, but the merciful God, should he choose to do so, is powerful enough to raise people up with that same power he exerted in the resurrection of Jesus. It's by God's free and undeserved gift. That's what the word grace means, free and undeserved gift, which Christians have been saved. And notice, Paul is at pains to insist that God gave such a salvation precisely when we were dead in transgressions. You see, it's not when we decided to be good moral citizens and start going to church. Get a bit of morality and religion into you and then you'll be right, no. It's not when we got baptised or had our first Holy Communion or said a certain prayer or did some religious thing, no. It's when we were dead in our sins, completely, irrevocably cut off from God, that is when God chose to raise us up with Christ and save us. As if that wasn't enough, God gave us the entirety of our salvation. He restored the relationship to absolute perfection for all time. 
Look how Paul goes on, speaking in the past tense of what God has accomplished in those to whom he has chosen to show mercy. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him, past tense, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages, so in the future, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, in our future, both now and also the future into eternity, God wants people to see the incomparable riches of his grace, shown by the fact that he has taken dead sinners like us and has placed them in the closest relationship with him that they can possibly have, seated in heaven, in Christ. I mean, you think about it, right? Where's God? Heaven. Where's Christ? Seated at his right hand. Where are you? You're in Christ. You can't be any closer to God than you currently are. If you're a Christian, there is actually nothing you can do to make you closer to God than what God has already done. And he's done that by raising you up with Christ and seating you with him, in him. The only exception to this rule is that when you die, uh, bodily you'll catch up to where you already are spiritually. And I once heard another preacher put it rather uh, in a funny way by saying that fasting, you know, denying yourself some food and drink, fasting doesn't make you any closer to God. But if you cut off all food and drink for a very long time, well then it will work, you will get closer to God if you do that. It's with that we come to the grand climax of this magnificent passage, which is where Paul ties all the teaching together to present, well, what do you know? A theological point. The main thrust, the, the sort of the gem in this is actually a, a piece of doctrine. A doctrine is a, a teaching of the Bible that helps us to know God better. Theology is about knowing God better and doctrines help us to do that. Now, sometimes you can think of doctrine as a kind of dry, academic, boring thing, but it is really just as much a joyful part of growing in our knowledge of God as anything else in Scripture. And here, in particular, the doctrine that Paul gives is one that I'm absolutely certain that any and every Christian will cherish immensely as Paul himself does. Here it is, verse 8, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Our salvation in its entirety, past, present, future, is given as a free gift from God. We did not, we cannot and we will not ever do anything to merit our salvation. Our salvation, past, present and future, is not from ourselves. God alone, completely as a free gift, brought us from absolute death to absolute life. In fact, the way I've sought to simplify and summarise Paul's teaching to us in this passage, albeit my feeble effort, is to say simply that human sin is absolute and God's saving grace is absolute. 
Just as there is no way we could ever possibly bring ourselves out of being dead in sin, so too there is no way we can ever bring ourselves out of the saving grace of God. So thoroughly and comprehensively is our salvation entirely God's doing that even the good works, the good deeds that we might do, are things he has sovereignly planned for us to accomplish. And so, final verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. I can't take credit for my good works, the good things I do or think or say, I can't take credit for that any more than I could take credit for being created. I did not create myself, nor could I ever possibly have created myself. That's logically impossible. God made me, and in His kindness and mercy, He also created me in Christ Jesus, such that it's even possible for me to do the good works He's already planned in advance uh, for me to do. I wonder if you can see why biblical Christianity, true Christianity, is just so profoundly different from any kind of religion that you care to think of. Religion, at least as most people understand it, is always about living by a set of rules and or rituals and or morals that, to varying degrees, bring you closer to God or to the divine. Whereas with Christianity... The whole of our practice, the whole of our life and faith and conduct happens precisely because we've already been brought into a perfect saving relationship with God that's guaranteed for eternity. Growing as a Christian is not about us getting closer to God. It's about having the eyes of our hearts continually enlightened so that we can know the riches of the inheritance that is already ours, to uh, paraphrase Paul's language earlier in Ephesians. This is why the gospel message really is good news. It's good news for the non-religious or the religious, it's good news for the broken, for the depressed, for the no-hoper, for the person who is outwardly fine but inwardly sees themselves as damaged goods, someone who would never be good enough to be welcomed into God's holy and eternal family. See, if you have to meet certain moral criteria in order to be accepted, if you have to have sincerely believed a series of complex propositions in order to be accepted, or if you had to have taken part in certain religious rites or rituals in order to be accepted, if you had to be born into a certain type of family in order to be accepted by God, if you have to overcome your addiction to alcohol or to drugs or to pornography or to sexual immorality in order to be accepted by God, then that is not good news at all. There can be no hope because I know me and you know you and we know we'd sooner or later stuff it up. But when you realise that God is rich in mercy, that because of the blood shed by Jesus, that he's willing and able to forgive sins, 
that he is powerful enough to raise you up with Christ from your otherwise hopeless predicament of being dead in sin. Well, then there's hope. You've got a chance, you've got a shot, no matter who you are. You've realised that the gospel message is, therefore, the greatest news of all, and it's for you, no matter who you are. To uh, quote one of my favourite hymns, the vilest of sinners who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And by the way, if, well, I don't know everyone here, if that is you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you want to be accepted into God's holy family, raised up with Christ both now and into eternity, well then the very fact you want that is already an indication that God is choosing to be merciful to you. You can accept his offer right now if you want and simply say to God in the quietness of your mind, I turn from my sin, I want to live for Jesus from now on, thanks for forgiving me and making me one of your children. You can do that now, you can do that anytime. When we look more broadly at the teaching of the New Testament, we learn that both the doctrines of absolute sin and of absolute grace are to shape the way Christians speak, think and act. These are big ticket items, these things are sort of present in all matters of faith and conduct for the, the people who are followers of Jesus. These doctrines permeate our thoughts and our words and our deeds and therefore they characterise our practices. Uh, let me take the doctrine of sin, for example. First of all, our attitude towards sin is that it's tragic, rotten and as confronting as death. One of the big problems we have is we keep underestimating the severity of human sinfulness. And this means that my well-to-do neighbour, who's an upright moral citizen, is nonetheless someone I'm desperately scared for because he, she is living cut off from God and therefore is under the rule of Satan. They are in the dominion of darkness. This is the plain testimony of God in Scripture. If I have any love of neighbour at all, which I should, because it's the second most important command, if I have any love of neighbour at all, I'll be looking for any and every opportunity to speak to them about the hope I have in Jesus. Apparently, as this photo suggests, holding a chicken is uh, beneficial when you do that. Secondly, because I contributed absolutely nothing to my salvation, I'll recognise that I'm in no way, shape or form able to have a, I did something better, I'm holier than thou kind of attitude. There's simply no room for boasting. I need to remember that if God had chosen to give his gift of salvation to Adolf Hitler on his deathbed, that then he'd be no less a child of God than any other Christian, myself included, who has ever lived. As the famous saying goes, evangelism is kind of like one beggar telling another beggar where he found the bread. Finally, the biblical doctrines of sin and grace make the doctrine of predestination absolutely necessary which in turn 
means that prayer, as Gav rightly pointed out before, is the most important part of sharing the gospel with others. You see, because dead sinners contribute nothing at all to our salvation, and because it's purely by the grace of God that he raises up people to be in Christ, well then, by necessity, it's only ever God's choice as to whether or not someone is saved. In fact, if you reject the doctrine of biblical predestination, you are in effect rejecting the gospel of grace. You see, it's not the case that God looked into the future before he made the world and and, and looked to see who would, of their own will and volition, somehow reach out in a feeble effort and turn to Jesus, such that God then decided to save those people. No, God saved us when we were dead in transgressions and sins incapable of making any choice to repent. Because he's so rich in mercy, even though he could have justly left all sinners to their own devices, he kindly chooses to save some. If this truth really does permeate our thinking and our practice, we'll therefore know that praying for the salvation of others, is the single most effective way of seeing them come to Christ. If you're praying for that non-Christian friend or that non-Christian family member to receive God's free gift of salvation and you feel like you've been doing it for years and that nothing ever changes, nothing's going to happen, I've got news for you. Paul's teaching right here encourages you to persevere. If he saved a wretch like me, what's to say he hasn't chosen to yet save a wretch like them? Speaking of prayer, I'm going to conclude in prayer now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you so much that in your amazing love and mercy, you chose to raise up dead sinners like us and seat us in Christ in the heavenly realms such that in the future people will be able to see and praise your amazing grace. Heavenly Father, please help us to think your thoughts after you, to see sin as worse than we generally see it and to see your grace as better than we're capable of seeing it. And Father, for those known to us who was yet... Are to receive that saving grace who currently remain uh, prisoners of Satan and following the ways of this world, we pray your mercy. We pray that it would please you to show your mercy to them, to turn them in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus so that they would stand firm both now and on the final day and we commit them to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.